Ecclesiastes, which should appear on the screen behind you. If you didn't have a case of the January blues before this, you will do in about five minutes' time. Everything is meaningless. Chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Good morning. Happy New Year and all that. I was thinking about this passage this week, and it strikes me that life is full of an awful lot of questions. Some are very, very small. Some are pretty big. So you get a small one to like. Would you like red or white wine? Would you like a return or would you like a single? Um, what sort of coffee would you like? Uh, would you like fries with that? Things like that. You get small, everyday questions in life. Hundreds of questions every day. There's someone in our home who gets bombarded as the household manageress with hundreds of questions. And so sometimes she says to me, I've had enough. Just make your own decision. I make decisions for everybody else. Life is full of a hundred or so little questions before, before nine o'clock. Ecclesiastes is not about life's small questions, however. It's about the big ones. It's about the really big ones of life. Why am I here? What's the purpose of it all? Where am I going when I die? What's the point of living? And so on. Those are not the sort of questions that strike you before nine o'clock, unless you're caused to sit up sweating in the middle of the night. But they are whoppers of questions. And it's those questions that the book of Ecclesiastes wants to explore. Those are not strange questions, but they are big ones. And Ecclesiastes is probably one of the most unread books in the Bible, which is why I want to look at it. And it's also full of huge questions and strange characters. 
You meet the first strange character in verse 1. Look down in your Bible with me, please. It says the words of the preacher. More helpful to say teacher, if I'm honest. More helpful even more, more faithful perhaps, to say the professor of philosophy. That's really what this man is seeking to do. It's Solomon, King David's son, and he's seeking to grapple and help us to understand life's big questions. He's a, if you want to get a handle of the book, don't call him a preacher in your mind. Often a preacher, of which I'm one, they provide you with a question and then they try and give you an answer. But one of the reasons why we don't want to call him a preacher, more of a teacher, more of a, a, a seminar leader, more of a professor of philosophy, is because all the big questions that he grapples with, that he throws our way, he doesn't give any answers to. That's why it's such a difficult book to look at. You know what it's like when you're in a seminar and people, the teacher prompts you and probes you and they won't let you off the mat. They won't let you kind of wiggle out of the conclusions of your argument. They push you and push you almost to breaking point. They uh, knock you down so that they might build you up. They uh, expose your way of thinking right down to the very core so that maybe your thinking is faulty, maybe it needs to change. And that's the role of the preacher, better the teacher, better the philosophy professor, whose name is Koaleth, that's the Hebrew name. Koaleth, it means professor, it means teacher, not preacher. But as I said, if there's so many questions in this book, where do we find the answers to life's big questions? Well, that's really the rest of the Bible. You could say all the big questions of life, they are going to be coming our way over the next six weeks or so through this book with very few answers. And so you could, if you wanted to, put Ecclesiastes right at the front of your Bible because all the rest of the answers come in the rest of this book, God's book. So let's look at the first and the main question. It comes in verse 3 of chapter 1. Here it is. Verse 3 of chapter 1. What does a man gain, or a person, what does a person gain from all their labour at which they toil under the sun? What's the point? That's what uh, the philosophy professor is wanting us to think about. Be honest, what's the point in working? What do we achieve in life under the sun? Verse 2 says, I look out in the world... For meaningless, a better word is futility. And all of life is futile. All of work is futile. All of pleasure is futile. Existence, what a great thing to look at at the start of January, a new year with all its hopes and dreams. It's all futile. Life under the sun is futility. Now let's get this down to our level. This is an important question to wrestle with for you. Whether you are a household uh, person scrubbing socks at the sink, What's the point? I know I'm going to have to do this again in a week's time. It's important for you if you are on the commute and your train is late again and you're trying to get home for mealtime just once this week and it's late again, good old British Rail. What's the point? It's important for you if you are someone on your knees in February picking out weeds in your garden, knowing that they're going to come back in just a few months' time when the sun warms the earth and so on. What's the point? Isn't it 
not meaningless, but isn't there a futility to life when you have a few grey hairs and you can see it? That's from verse 3. It's also there from verses 16 to 18. The more you experience life, the more you go on in years, the more you accomplish, down to verse 18, the more knowledge you have in your mind, knowledge, well, that just produces more grief. The more I saw, says the professor, the more I experienced, the more I accomplished, the more sick I got in my heart about life. Now let's pause and let's be honest. Not everybody in this world is sick about life. Let's be honest. There are some people who really enjoy life that may be for a couple of reasons, that they are on the crest of a wave and they are experiencing success in the world. It may be because they are living their lives in such a way that they are avoiding life's big questions. That's another reason why they are not sick about life at this point. Isn't it true if you fill your diary full enough, if you stay busy enough, if you take in enough pleasure, whatever that may be, it kind of acts like an anaesthetic to the soul. You don't have to ask life's biggest questions. When you're so busy, you haven't got time to think. The volume of the world is so loud, you drown out life's biggest questions. But here verse 3 says, this is something each one of us has to grapple with, whether we're at the sink, we're on the station platform, whether we're on our hands and knees in the garden, whatever our stage of life, what gain do you have to show, verse 3, for all your work, your toil in life under the sun? In that question that governs the whole book, every phrase is important. We're going to look at each one. This word gain to start off with. This word gain is a unique word in the Bible. It should be on the screen. It means profit. It means what's left over, what's of lasting value. It's a weight word. It's a financial word to say, in the final balances, how much of your life is worthy? Can I do anything to help that? There we go. Is that better? What have you got to show for your life at the end? What have you got to show for life's work? What have you got to show for your toil? What's the point? That's the big question of the book. Verse 3 says you're so very busy, you're working so, so hard. And what have you got to show for it? What difference have you made in the world? Or are you, are you just like a sand print or a footprint in the sand? Put my teeth in. Are you just like a footprint in the sand before the wave comes in? And then your life has disappeared and you've made no lasting mark on history. What does your life mean? What are you really accomplishing? What is life all about? These huge questions that paraphrase the one question. What is meaning for life? What is, what are, why are we here? What's the point? What should we be doing with our time? And this passage wrestles with the world's three most prominent answers that I want to look at one at a time. What are the three answers? Here's one. Well, I'm here to make the world a better place. I'm here to make the world a better place. If I work hard, I'm going to make a niche and a difference in my life, whether it's in the life of my home, whether I'm going to make the best garden in the world. You can tell why I'm thinking about horticulture. I like my garden. I'm here to make my body so attractive and rock solid. I don't struggle with that issue. Um, <laughs> Because everyone's going to look at my glory. I'm going to earn so much money, people are going to remember my name. And their name is stand after me at a football ground, whatever it may be. I'm here to make the world 
a better place. That's the answer of humanism or humanistic way of thinking. And the professor in this passage gets out some smelling salts and put it sit right up to our noses and says, if you think that is the meaning for life, let me just uh, give you some smelling salts. Let me prick that bubble. It says so in verse 4, you think people are going to remember your name? Let me tell you this, generations come and generations go, but the earth endures forever, down to verse 11 in your Bible. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Told you it was a great passage for the new year. In Les Mis, only a French person could write this. In Les Mis, you've got that scene when they're making the barricade, it's towards the end of the film and the book and the play, and the young men who are singing for freedom, who are standing against what they see as oppression, sing these words. Will the world remember you when you fall, when you die? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more lie? Am I just one more life? And to that song, the teacher, the professor says, absolutely. In 40 years time, no one will remember who you are. And even if a few do, in 4,000 years' time, as the world keeps turning, unless Jesus has returned, no one will remember who you are. That's the first phrase. Thinking humanistically, if you're thinking you're here to make the world a better place. The key to understanding what the philosopher sees as he looks out into his world is there in the, the last few words of verse 3. He's raising this question, what gain have you got for your toil under the sun? And those last three words introduce us to a different way of thinking about the world. You're not just here to make the world a better place. Under the sun, that we're going to see again and again through this book, these, these three words, the philosopher is saying, do you view this world, all you can see, taste, smell and touch, as all that there is? Let me push you on that, says the philosopher, says the teacher. If this world is all there is, if space and time that we can measure with our watches and our weekly planners and our calendars, if that's all that there is, then your work really is futile. Your existence really is meaningless. If this is all there is, then nothing you do will mean anything eternally. No one will remember your name in 40 years or 4,000 years. Everything will end in nothing. If this world is all there is, if all you can see with your eyes and experience in your life, if this is all there is, then verse 2 is absolutely right. Life is futile. It's not weighty, it's not lasting, it's not important. It's air. If life is all there is, if there's no God who made you, think about that. If there's no God who sustains the universe, think about that. If there's no eternity, then what is the point of living? If there's no afterlife, if all we have is three score years and ten or a little bit more, once again, you are like that footprint by the side of the sea where people will, in, you can enjoy life and you can make life as good as you can for yourself and for others. But if this life is all there is, soon your life will be long forgotten. It's the first happy beginning to the new year, living humanistically and the teacher, the philosophy professor says, 
If that's all there is, you need to own the conclusions of your worldview. Your life does not mean a thing. Here's the second one. If it's not just uh, humanistically, if you're not just here for the good of other people, what about if you live your life so you're here for yourself? That's another way of living your life. The long word for that is hedonistically. If you're not here for the good of other people, what about just living for the good of yourself? What about living for pleasure? If there's no answers to life's big questions, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Let's do some of that. Let's enjoy the creativity. Let's enjoy poetry. Let's enjoy travel. Let's enjoy physicality. Let's enjoy whatever you like. And along comes the professor with his big uh, shoulder launch missile and says, let me speak into that context. Verse 8. All things are wearisome. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Down to verses 12 to 16. I was king over Jerusalem. I devoted myself. I saw it all. I accomplished it all. I had all the pleasure I wanted. I had all the accomplishment I wanted. And it was a chasing after the wind. Here's the point. When you live hedonistically, when you just live for pleasure, whatever that may be, not just in a crass sense, but if you just live for whatever your interests are, you have to keep topping that up because that pleasure that you enjoyed 10 years ago has got a bit soft and you need something stronger. It's a bit like an addiction. You can only possibly enjoy your life from day to day. You always want more to avoid the big questions of life. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe Solomon. Think about someone called Howard Hughes. He was an American billionaire. He had more money than you can imagine. He inherited a ton of money and he invested it very wisely and shrewdly so it got even more. He wanted more money, so he piled it into different assets. He wanted more fame. So he went to Hollywood and he started his own production company and he starred in films. He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he spent a lot of money on indulging every sexual urge he had. He wanted more thrills, so what did he do? He built the fastest known aircraft. He wanted power, so he made backroom deals to get not one but two presidents into power. He was absolutely convinced that he would be happy as long as he had more, just like Solomon says. But sadly, he died with $2.4 billion in the bank, with long fingernails, with marks all up his arm from his drug addiction, and he died alone. A billionaire, a junkie, by all accounts, he was insane. And the philosophy professor says, you can live like Howard Hughes, in Epsom and Yule, not with that much money and resources, but in your own way. You can get drunk whenever you want. You can sleep around as much as you want. You can do whatever you want. But do you know what? If you live like that, verse 16, living not for the good of other people, but living for yourselves and living just for pleasure, it's like chasing after the wind. It will never be enough. That's uh, humanistically. That's living hedonistically, individualistically for yourself. And here's the third one. This is a longer word. I'm going to live uprightly. That's a short way of saying existentially. Here's, the, here's a man and he says, verse 2, life is meaningless, but I don't want to be meaningless. Life is, uh, shows a lack of mercy in the world. Uh, bad things happen to good people, but I'm going to live mercifully. There is not justice in the world, but I'm going to live a just life. 
Life is not fair, but I'm going to live a fair life. He's living in this way in verse 17. He's understanding the wisdom of the world and the madness and folly, but I've learned too that this is chasing after the wind. In other words, I've tried to understand the wisdom of the world. I've tried to understand how the world fits together. Life under the sun, I've looked at nature, and I don't think that there's any afterlife. I don't think there's any meaning to life. So I'm going to do my best, I'm going to make my own values, and I'm going to live mercifully and uprightly and justly and fairly. That's an existential way of living. And here the professor says, well, I've tried that too, verse 17, and guess what? That's a chasing after the wind. And the professor wants us to see this. You can choose any one of those three categories to live your life, and each one is a chasing after the wind. But there's no middle ground. You can't just take a piece of one way of thinking and, and mix it with something else. Either there's life under the sun and that's it, or there's another life. Either it's this life and the end, or there's another life. There's no middle ground. Either there's a God who exists above the sun, or there's not. Either there's a God who has made the world, who sustains the world, who knows you, and who will judge you. Either there is life above the sun, or there's not. And there's no middle ground. And if there's not a God who has made you and sustains you and who knows you, if there's not, then life, verse 2, is utter futility and there's nothing in the middle. See, he puts us on the mat and he won't have us wriggle out because life is meaningless if this life is all there is. Either you're sold out for this life because this life is all there is and you're going to live life to the max and you'll sleep when you're dead, as Bon Jovi, sir in my age, once sung about. Or there is some more to life. And he pushes us and pushes us and pushes us. Christian friends, if you're here and you're thinking, when are you going to get to the good news? Soon. Do you see how there's no middle ground? If as a Christian you believe, no, 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 this life is not all there is. That there is life beyond the sun. There is a God who exists outside of space and time. If you believe that, do you see Either you are sold out for him or you're not. Do you see how bleak this is? We need to see its bleakness. If we see that there is a God who has entered time and space at Christmas, do we not see how that should change everything in our lives? Because these three answers that the world gives are not weighty enough for me. And they're not weighty enough for us to build our lives upon. And that's why, praise God, the Bible does give not one of three answers, it provides with the answer. In John 1, John 1 is written in a philosophical way. And so if I read it to you in a different way, you may be able to pick out and change word. John tells us that in the beginning was the Logos, and he was with God and he was God. We're familiar with a different way of writing. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It talks about Jesus, who is God, fully. In the time that it was written, when John was writing this 2,000 years ago, for decades and centuries, Greek and Roman philosophers had been racking their brains as to the meaning of life. What is life all about? They were doing what 
Ecclesiastes 1 encourages us to do. They were grappling with the big questions and they were reasoning together. They were looking at all sorts of different ways of thinking and understanding the world. All sorts of different history ways of understanding the world and reasoning. And then John comes along and says, enough of your talking. In the beginning was the logos. Logos means the meaning for life. And John says, it's not in terms of your reasoning. It's not in terms of your thinking. The meaning for life does not come in an explanation. The meaning for life comes in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is no meaning in life, and so meaning came into the world, and his name is Jesus. It's truth brought about not by a person, it's truth that has come into the world from outside of the sun, outside of nature, outside of creation, outside of time and space. But it's come as a person, and his name is Jesus. And so later on, John writes down in verse 14 of John chapter 1, the logos, the word, the logos became flesh, and he dwelt, he tabernacled amongst us, and we saw his glory. This is something that's come from outside of our reasoning and rationale because we'd never find God if it was left to ourselves. And friends, if you're not yet a Christian, let me tell you what a Christian is. A Christian is simply someone who has seen something profound. A Christian is someone who has beheld, who has seen the glory of God in Jesus. A Christian is someone when they see the glory... They see that here is someone that I should worship and serve. Here is someone who I should worship and serve and who is the reason for life and who when I know him, I know that life is worth living. It is not meaningless when you know Jesus. It is not meaningless when you know why you were made, why you exist, for whose glory you exist and who were made. And so you can serve others, not yourself. And so you can enjoy all that God has made, not in a self-centered way, but in a God-honoring way. So you can know and have new values, not because they come from within and you want to be fair and just and do what's right, but because you know the maker of heaven and earth and he knows how things work. Being a Christian means you know everything in this life is a reflection of God's nature in its purpose and in its glory. So you can enjoy it. The world is not, verse 2, futile. It is not meaningless. It has an appointed beginning and it has a God-ordained end. And then there's eternity. And a Christian is someone who knows this and it's changed the way they exist in God's world. A Christian knows, for example, I know why there is spring after winter. Because God has appointed it. It's not by accident. I know that when a seed dies and up comes a flower, I know that that is not by accident. I know that it is a sign that God in his grace brings life out of death. And he does that again and again and again. Some of you are here who are not yet a Christian. You may be pressing down on this truth. You may be saying... Well, actually, I might live like one of those first three answers, but not, this is kind of different from me. You might think, you might be suppressing that there is a God who exists. And Romans 1 and the book of Ecclesiastes later on says that God has placed eternity into every man and woman's hearts. 
And so if you are breathing still, if you are enjoying the pleasures of life, you're living off God's capital, so to speak, but without acknowledging who he is. Nobody in this room can really live as if there is no God. Why? Because Ecclesiastes says God has placed that truth in our hearts. But we don't like acknowledging it, and so we press it down. We press it down until, by God's grace, he shows us himself afresh. But Christian friends, can you see as we're on the mat, as the philosophy professor is saying, do you really believe that eternity is real? Do you really believe that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has defeated death? Why are you afraid of it? Do you really see, if you understand that we can work hard for God's glory, why are you so lazy as an employee? If you see, if you see who Jesus is afresh, that he is the logos, he is the meaning of life, and he is the source of eternal life, if you see that, that will change how you work in 2018. It will change how you parent. It will change how you pull weeds out of the garden. It will change absolutely everything. Here's an equation. If you live for life under the sun, if that's all there is, you will ultimately lose your life. If you live as if life under the sun is just part of a universe that's shot through with God's glory from beginning to end, something unique happens. You'll find life when God comes and puts his finger on your heart because you'll find him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of the Bible. There are many of us that would love to skip over this book because it's hard and it asks us deep and penetrating and searching questions. But I pray, please, that you would help us to wrestle with life's big questions afresh. And as we do, help us to own our conclusions. If we're not yet a Christian, help us to see, please, the reason why we're living. If we are a Christian, help us to grasp afresh the joy that it is to know the freedom that's found in Jesus, that we know who we are because of your grace. Help us to sing about that now, I pray. Amen.